This week's episode is kindly supported by Species Unite. Species Unite is a series of conversations with world-leading activists, advocates, artists, filmmakers and conservationists who are fighting injustice towards animals. Listen to conversations with Mercy for Animals' Leah Gosses, filmmakers Beverly and Derek Schubert, and legendary photographer Joanne MacArthur, Barbara King, whose TED Talk about animal emotions went viral, Ma Ching of Animal Hope and Wellness on his time inside Asia's dog slaughterhouses, Jan Kremer on the end of circuses, and so many others who've dedicated their lives to create a better world for all the inhabitants who share it, a world of coexistence. Find out more at speciesunite.com or click the link in the description. So yes, for the most part, I'm not invited into these places. They don't want people with cameras showing the conditions animals are living in. And so we do go in at night, often through open doors, over a fence, through a fence, and uh, spending our night just documenting as many animals as we can, the conditions, the injuries, the cruelty, the sadness, the space, the lack of space, the filth. Uh, I wish that my images could convey the smells as well. Something that is always quite striking is when you're approaching a dirty farm, and a lot of them are dirty. Pig farm, mink farm, oh my gosh. Sometimes your eyes water from the smell of ammonia. Hi friends, welcome to another episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. This week we meet Joanne MacArthur. Joanne is a Canadian photojournalist, animal rights activist, humane educator, and author. She is known for We Animals, a photography project documenting human relationships with animals. This work led to the We Animals Humane Education Program, where Joanne offers presentations about human relationships with animals in education and other environments. Through the We Animals Archive, she provides photographs and other media for those working to help animals. Joanne was the primary subject of the 2013 documentary The Ghosts in Our Machine and is the founder also of the Unbound Project, which aims to celebrate and recognize female animal rights activists. Her first book, We Animals, was published in 2013 and her second, Captive, was published in 2017. Joanne has been awarded for her photography and activism work too, including the 2018 Wildlife Photographer of the Year People's Choice Award. Joanne is a dear friend of mine. She is so inspiring and her work is simply breathtaking and incredible. If you ever get a chance to check out the We Animals Archive media, please do. It is a wonderful tool to help tell the stories of animals in captivity. I hope you enjoy this episode. Please don't forget to comment, like, and share. It really helps get the message out there. And if you're on iTunes, please leave us a review. That really helps too. Let's get to the episode and hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Joe. It's a real pleasure to finally sit down with you. So happy to be here. I've spent months on the road and the work is done and I have a huge body of work looking at what it's like to be an animal in a zoo. To date, I've photographed animals in probably 25 countries around the world. So before we delve into all the amazing things that you, and there are many amazing things that you're doing with your life now, let's go back in time and tell us your vegan story. Where did it all begin for you and how did you get involved in this lifestyle and this movement? Ah, it began because I got to know some chickens. So I had plenty of other animals around in my life and I was always compassionate towards them. But then I met some chickens and they hung out with the two dogs and the cat. And I saw that they had complex and unique personalities, just like the dogs and cats did. And I have this recollection of all of them in the morning sitting at the back door on, on the deck in the sun, 
all of them enjoying the sun and all of them wanting to come in the house when the door opened. So like 10 chickens, two dog and a cat because they wanted to socialize and they wanted to look around and get up on the couch. And chicken was my favorite food. Absolutely favorite food, barbecue chicken. But then I got to know these chickens and I was like, oh, okay, well, this, you know, eating, eating chickens and probably eating animals no longer aligns with my ethics now that I have this information about the sentience of chickens. And so I was, you know, morally obliged to uh, stop eating them. And about that, like, you know, for me, it was getting to know chickens, but not everyone can have that opportunity. So it's interesting for us animal advocates to figure out how we can, you know, bring the proverbial chickens to people so that they can feel and learn and understand and make positive changes. Yeah. And at the time that you were kind of going through this, were there people around you that, you know, lived that lifestyle or were you, did you, were you quite isolated in your kind of choices? Yeah, that's, that's interesting because I was isolated in my choices. I had met two vegetarians in my life. And uh, there was no one in my circle who was a vegetarian. So that was an additional conundrum for me. And I thought I would feel isolated from my family and from parties. And so I felt like there was the whole social aspect to consider as well. And yet I made the choice to not eat animals because you just can't. (laughs) Like For me, I just could not eat them in good conscience. And I figured I would adapt. Uh, I didn't know what the adapting to being veg in a carnist world would be like, but I knew I had to do it. And to my relief and to, I guess, to my surprise, to a degree, it was easy and people were very accepting and uh, people would ask why and I would tell them why. And, uh, you know, no great fuss. Of course, people push back, but I mean, it doesn't matter. It's actually quite easy to be veg in in a carnist world. I always had a love and a concern for animals but I was in my 20s before my relation to chickens changed. My mom had pet chickens at home and I fell in love with their charming ways and their quirks. But at the same time, I was eating chicken for dinner. I was quick to realize that these animals were no different from the dogs and other animals I so adored. I made a promise to animals then, one that I keep to this day, that I wouldn't harm them that I'd use my camera to tell their stories and that I'd never turn away. This chicken has never been pet before and she loves it. I mean, chickens just love this. She's settling down onto my hands. She's starting to preen herself now because she likes what I'm doing so much. Look at this, she's settling into my hand because it's warm, she's happy. Yes, yes, I like you too. I know that you're sweet. I mean, she's sitting in my hand. I'm feeling her little heartbeat. <laughs> so you grew up and you were raised in uh, in Ottawa, Ontario. Ontario? Yes. Ontario, yeah. yes. Ontario. <laughs> Got to get that twang. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what was the kind of culture that you grew up in? Because obviously it's very different. I imagine it was quite different to you to sort of, you know, USA in culture because it isn't wasn't is Ontario a French um, aspect of part of Canada or uh, well it is sort of the neutral territory of Canada in fact so it's a bi- bilingual province okay and the kind of and the food culture that you grew up in as a child like what was it very was it very meat heavy animal product heavy or yeah or just, just a standard 
Yeah, just tip, just picture uh, in the 70s and 80s, your typical basic British, you know, fair. Meat and two veg. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is the household that I grew up in with yeah. know, a little bit of Italian influence by way of, you know, pasta and pizzas and those kinds of things. Yeah. And your ancestry, MacArthur, is that Scottish or Irish? Uh, Scottish via Scottish. Australia. <laughs> Right. Yeah, Australia. <laughs> a lot of meat, a lot of meat and potatoes in Australia. So, and actually, my uh, my grandparents, uh, my grandfather was a dairy farmer. Uh, his family owned a huge dairy, and and actually, that's how he and my uh, grandmother met. So it was his family dairy, and my grandmother was like the poor milkmaid, the barefoot milkmaid, half his age. What a scandal! Wow. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so dairy, I mean, like a lot of us, we, we have uh, farming in our recent history. That, that farming connection, did you grow up around the animals? Did you connect with them in the sense that, you know, was there a distance between you or were you kind of, did you, how did you see them and how did, how did you view them at that time in, when, when you were young? Well, I think that any interaction we ever had with farm animals was, you know, my parents encouraging us to look at the farm animals and like moo at them when you're passing them in the, you know, when you drive by that, that classic thing. Oh, and the smell, the smell of barns, you know, we love the smell of barn and straw and cow manure and, you know, generally an ethos of celebration of all things farmy, but that totally didn't take into consideration the experience of the animals. And actually, now that we're talking about this, I guess that is the experience from many, if not most people with regards to farm animals. Yeah, there's a distance there, isn't there? You yeah. you have a distance between you and the animal in the, in the field and you in the car or the truck or the pickup truck. There is always that distance. And even as a farmer, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not the son of a farmer, but I grew up on a farm and we grew up next to a dairy farm. And the animals were always very sort of distant to us. They weren't seen in the same way as our dogs and cats were seen. Dogs and cats were friends and farm animals were food. And I still, and I've talked about this often on this podcast, I don't understand why I didn't see that gap because I consider myself a very compassionate person. I love and love and loved and love animals now more than ever. But at the time in my childhood, it's almost as if that sort of carnistic culture that I grew up in kind of blinded me so heavily to the reality that farmed animals are just as important, their individual nature and their preciousness is just as as um, as kind of intelligent and capable as the dogs and cats that we loved in our homes, but because obviously we're looking at, we'll talk about obviously your current life and everything you do now. But what do you think is the difference between what your where your mind was then and where you are now? Like what what do you think is the the main gap for people when we we make this shift? Well, before I, I get to that, I will say you're triggering a memory for me from when I was a child. There was. In the middle of Ottawa, there was the experimental farm. That's what it's called, and they have uh, it's it's for visitors. It's meant to you know bring the farming world to the city, and it's open for tourists. And you walk up and down the rows of cows who are just you know kept in there. Well, what is it called? Like where they stand with their heads through the, the bars, just yeah, chewing stalls or something. Um, yeah, the stalls, right? And mm. and you can pet them. And I have photos of me as a wee child. Uh, standing next to them smiling and I was so happy and I used to beg to go there on weekends and I loved animals and I wanted to be around them but yeah this this uh, disconnect I don't you know it's interesting that they show that aspect of it but not this water I think it would have been a different situation had they also you know led you into the next room where they were 
slicing the throats of these animals and using stun guns and hanging them upside down by their legs. Now, to your question about what was it that created the switch, I mean, maybe you should ask it again. I mean, I'm thinking I'm going back to my chicken story, and there was that. So I think what it was really is an, it was education. It was exposure and education, and we don't get those things. We don't get those things in school about the reality of farm animals. We don't get that in school. We don't get that at home. It's not in any curriculum, and we're not exposed to the reality of farmed animals, and we're not exposed to their personalities. We're not getting exposed to how sentient they are when we're driving by them in a field. And but why, that's what, why is that, it hidden from us? Why do you think they? It seems to be hidden because we, t- as the saying goes, we don't take our children to slaughterhouses. We take them to pick apples and berries. Why? Why we we want our children to eat meat, and we want our children to consume these animals' bodies, but we won't show them how they're processed and how they're treated on farms after they leave the beautiful fields. Well, not always beautiful fields, but... Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's because we want what we want and we don't want to shake, rock the boat. We want to maintain the status quo. We would rather give preferential space in the world to satisfying our tastes. And we don't think of it that way if we're not thinking about it. Once you start thinking about it, and that's what we're talking about and doing right now. And also, we don't want to disrupt ourselves. We don't want to disrupt our traditions. We associate meat-eating traditions with uh, happiness and family time and wholesome family time and, and all these good things, right? So how can factory farming be wrong if the celebrations and traditions around meat eating are so wholesome and good. It doesn't compute. And, you know, we humans, we we don't always want to think critically and we're not taught to think critically. We're not taught that it's exciting and challenging and fruitful to think critically. How's we that? Don't wanna, yeah, we do. Well, it's makes, it makes a lot of sense that the, the powerful hold that culture has over us as people can sometimes override our sense of justice or our sense of compassion. And we often in the vegan community talk about how it can feel like we have unlearned what can feel like a bit of a brainwashing in, in a place where we are taught through the carnistic world that we live in that eating animals is normal and it's needed when in their actual reality is, is it's not necessarily needed. And I think unlearning that is one of the biggest realizations. And I think this is why a lot of people, when they become vegan and, and become or switch into a plant-based lifestyle, they're overwhelmed because they suddenly think, well, I'm living all this life in a, in a way what feels like a bit of a lie that, you know, I had this vision of farms with animals skipping free and, you know, being killed nicely behind closed doors for me so I can have my chicken breast and my pork chops. But, you know, those animals don't need, if I don't need to eat those animals, if they don't need to die for me, then why are we killing them? Why are we actually causing so much suffering? That powerful realization that unlocks in people is... Uh, I think is a, is an incredible gift, and it and it is something I wish we could share with all people. But it's a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> I am seeing progress worldwide. We're seeing a rise in plant-based eating, veganism. Uh, people are reducing the number of animals that they are eating, which is great. There's a lot more awareness now, but there's also a rise in meat eating and animal use in different countries and different parts of the world. And so we're seeing. Uh, a rise of the good and the bad. So what we need is all hands on deck, uh, raising the good and raising awareness and taking part in change. Things are really dire right now. So now is the time to, to be part of the change.
these realizations that we can have are can be seen and should be seen as celebrations and as opportunities in our life to grow and and change and do better in the world for ourselves and for others. But we have a real knee-jerk reaction to uh, being confronted or to having change, right? We all all, uh, generally have a knee-jerk reaction to change in any way. And so we're going to put up all of those defensive ideas, those weak, those weak arguments that we have in order, in order to not change what we're doing. Because we think that change equals suffering. We often think that, but it, it doesn't have to. So we even have to have a change of mind about, uh, change of heart about change. <laughs> mm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and bringing that change can be done in so many different ways. You talk about education before. Your uh, chosen craft or art, artistry, is photography. Tell us how you got into photography. When did you pick up your first camera and why did you choose this as your as your path? Yeah, I was obsessed with photography since I was a child and I was obsessed with looking at pictures, the taking of pictures, the immortalizing of important things. And when I was young, the immortalizing of important things was images of my family. And I returned to those images for, for you know, over and over in the albums. But this idea of immortalizing important things translated as I grew into the world and became really curious about the world and about us and why we do the things we do. So the camera for me became a tool, an all-access tool, shall we say, into the lives of others. I know that some people might think, well, if you, you know, walk around with a camera, people will actually turn their backs or shy away or challenge you or don't take my picture. But the way that I do it, I'm a really friendly person. And I, I, when I started with street photography and cultural photography, I would, you know, do it with, you know, I'm very open and smiley and take their picture and then engage with them. And who are you? And what are you doing? You look fantastic here. Look at the light. Tell me your story and all this. And, and people like to talk about themselves. And, and so that has been my approach. And I, I was very influenced by street photographers and conflict photographers. I admired them and I wanted to do what they did. And so in the early years, I had ideas about going to conflict areas and getting into the thick of things. I really like getting into the thick of things. But one of my mentors, Larry Towell, he's a magnum photographer. I, I was waxing lyrical to him about going to Afghanistan and all this. And he's like, Joe, that's not you. That's not you at all. Do what you love. Uh, do what you're most interested in. And that was really good advice. And that's advice that I continue to give people to this day. And what I was most interested in was animals and the stories of animals. And it took me a while to get my head around how to do this because, I mean, that's not what I was planning on doing. I wanted to be a conflict photographer. But, you know, then I was like, it, it came together. I was like, well, there certainly is a lot of conflict between us and the animals. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized I had a lifetime of work cut out for me. These animals have been bred to grow so fast that their hearts and legs can hardly keep up with the pressure from their bulking bodies. We haven't spent more than a minute here before we can see the dead scattered amongst the living. To some, death comes quickly. Others wither slowly away. I wonder how these chickens will react once they realize I mean no harm. I stop shooting, sit down, and put my camera on the ground. At first, they're still cautious, but soon the bolder birds start to get closer. They're curious. 
Soon I find myself surrounded by a sea of chickens. I'm covered in chickens right now. <laughs> They're clambering to get up here. There's tens of thousands of birds in here, but you know, if these guys were at Farm Sanctuary or at any sanctuary, they would have a name. The world that you stepped into, which is dark and there's not really, I mean, there's no words often, uh, there are no words really that can come close to describing the kind of world that you stepped into. No words, just pictures. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the pictures say it all and obviously they're not, not every image that you take is, is of the horrors of factory farming. There are some incredibly beautiful ones of people and animals as well and your wildlife, uh, you've been um, given a wildlife photography award. Do you want to talk a bit about some of those and, and your your kind of relationship with capturing that beautiful essence of the individual nature of animals. Cause we've talked about this before that I think that the trouble with a lot of humans and animals is they do not see animals as individuals. I think in pre pre 1900s, animals were often seen as automatons, mindless creatures sort of stuck on a track going round and round, simply bound by uh, instinct and nothing else. And, and, mi- and mindless in many ways. Talk a little bit about like your relationship with capturing that individual nature and, and, and why it's such an important part of what you do. Ah, you ask such good questions. <laughs> I love it when we get to talk. Um, I get so excited about talking about photography and how I see things and how I want others to see animals. So traditionally with animal photography, it was a medium to capture animals so that we could gaze at them. It was very much for us. And that's what we saw typically in animal portraiture and wildlife photography, whether it was, you know, the beautiful face of a tiger or, um, you know, watching a, a predator attack and eat its prey. Like all this stuff is for our entertainment and our gaze and the fulfillment of our wonder. But I felt like a lot of this work just was never for the animals or never really gave us any insight into who these individuals might be. We might see a little bit about some of their basic instincts, but things have evolved with animal photography. They have evolved into conservation photography. So people are telling a truer story of the human animal conflict and how they suffer at our hands. And those are stories of, of poaching and animals who die in our cities because we're poisoning them. And I mean, there's just endless conflict, as you know, but things are moving towards animal photojournalism, which is what my organization, We Animals Media, is really pushing and mentoring. So animal photojournalism is an additionally more in-depth story, not just of wildlife, not just of pets, but of all animals. And these are animals that you and I in particular focus on, animals who are in factory farms and fur farms and labs and and all of this. And animal photojournalism is different because it's newsy, it's more in-depth, it's about photo essays, it's about staying longer, it's about telling a truer story that will allow us to see and reflect in a deeper way that any kind of pet or animal portraiture would allow. And so a lot of my work is investigative in nature, but uh, coming back to what you mentioned about the the happier images, those can also have uh, a wonderful enlightening and educational effect on people. Uh, The image that you're referring to is a photo uh, of a polonaire, a polonaire and pikin. Pikin is the gorilla, 
Apollinaire is the man, and this is at a ape sanctuary in Africa. And uh, it's a beautiful moment between a caretaker and a young gorilla as he's carrying her in a truck, no less. She was sedated, but she woke up early from the sedation, which actually put me in a very compromised position <laughs> because she didn't know me. And she was a gorilla and we were in a car together. And uh, I was nervously taking pictures while she woke up early from the sedation and knowing I was in a little bit of danger, but also knowing that I was getting a really u- unique and stunning image. And uh, that ended up being an image that... Uh, is quite world renowned now because it's such a moment of beauty uh, interspecies beauty it is it's a beautiful beautiful image and it's one of those images that sort of stay with you because you know as human beings especially in the modern world we live in now we're exposed to tens of thousands of images on a daily or monthly or weekly basis and that's the power of imagery which is really moves into the realms of art really because art is about capturing something that speaks to you rather than you know because images are more than just sort of pixels on a screen or paint on a canvas or ink on a piece of paper they convey and transmit an image those images that you capture you know they they aren't they aren't stored in the pixels they're not stored in the in the ink on the paper of the of the printed versions of your photos the actual arrangement of that color and that light actually transmits a message to the brain of the person who observes it and it and it sends a powerful reminder into the minds of the people that look at it. And this is what I find so powerful and fascinating about photography and about sort of artistry in general is that it does have the power to shape and shift and unlock realizations within people and help them make those connections. Because again, there's this sort of chasm between humans and animals where people sort of, they don't see animals as individuals. They just see them as this sort of mass of of objects ready to be plucked for consumption and your photography is about showing the individuals who are often incarcerated like human beings on a death camp or human beings in a prison cell where a, a journal a photographic journalist has gone in to sort of take pictures of how these human beings are being mistreated you go into these death camps you could call them and 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 capture the individuals in their in their most raw form and and i think this is the power of photography. And, you know, as I said in our live interview, there, there are no words to describe how beautiful and also equally painful the work uh, you do is and how, how really important it is. And you've obviously gone on to, to win many awards, but also create incredible projects as well that convey or kind of facilitate your work with We Animals, We Animals, not We Animals Media. Talk about how that sort of came together and where did you get the idea for it? Okay. Uh, and I agree with you that images do have to be beautiful, even when they are depicting, sharing a very painful moment, because it really is an uphill battle getting people to look at these images of cruelty, and let alone getting them to engage in these images. And the way you do that is by creating something striking and poignant and thoughtful that pulls them back to the image. And that is how We Animals started. It was in 1998, and I was hiking in Ecuador, and I came across a macaque monkey who was chained to a windowsill. And there were a bunch of tourists standing around photographing this monkey and laughing and thinking that this was funny. And I took images because I thought this was cruel, and perhaps I could do something with this image that would help the animal, which never happened. But that was my thought, and I felt like an island in these people, and that I didn't understand why they also didn't see the cruelty, or perhaps they did, and they had to cover it with what 
you're meant to, you know, how you're meant to react, like with pleasure or laughing or whatever. And I saw that my thoughts about the animal and the situation were unique in that circle. And I felt that my opinion of it was more important than theirs. And therefore, I thought my images were more important than the ones they were taking. And I was like, I have to get this out into the world. I want people to see this. I want people to know my opinion about how animals are treated. And it was actually then that I immediately thought of the title, We Animals. Trust me, titles take a really long time. <laughs> like with my new book, this is like a two-year thought process on what to call it. But um, I didn't even, hadn't even started We Animals yet, but there was the title. And it took a few years before I really ramped up to shooting for We Animals Project quite a bit. Uh, we Animals was turned into uh, the sort of the umbrella name for all of my work. And then it became a book. And now it has become a media agency. And, and, the, and the archive is uh, this incredible treasure trove of, of, of all the creative work or this photography that is free to use for nonprofits and, and charities, but uh, um, also open to commercial use by organizations who wish to use it in a, in a commercial sense, obviously. Tell us about how that's worked and like, you know, how, how much exposure has it got the photos? Because I assume there's a, is there a way to track how, how far the images have gone? Yeah, data is key for us, but also it's, it's near impossible to track how far the images have gone especially with their massive amounts of use on uh, our um, social media. The archive is a way to amplify the work that I do. And what is the point of doing this work if I can't amplify it to its full effect? And so that has been a leading question for me through most of my career doing animal photojournalism. When I started, I was doing too many shoots. I, anything that I was interested in, I was saving up money for in my commercial photography work and going out to shoot it. But photographers do this classic thing where we shoot a lot and then we just you know, look at the images, edit the images and put them on a hard drive. And we don't spend a lot of time getting them out into the world. But because I want my work to have social impact, it needs to get out to NGOs. It needs to get out to students media, anyone who can benefit from using these images. And so selling them is one way of doing that, but you're really limiting the usage that way. So I was like, okay, I want all of my work, all of my best work available for free to anyone helping animals. Well, how do I do that? Because, you know, giving all your work away for free equals, you know, <laughs> not a very successful financial or home life. <laughs> sure. How do you feed yourself? And so what I did was build a model that is funded by grants and monthly donations. And so that pays me and the team a monthly amount of money that allows us to do everything for free, essentially. So I can shoot for free. I don't have to be hired by NGOs. I can volunteer with NGOs. I can do whatever I want worldwide to shoot and to make all the work available for free. And that's at weanimalsarchive.org. Currently, there are 12,000 images and videos, and we're really, really ramping up. Uh, we have Archive 2.0 launching probably by the end of the year, and it's going to have the work of a lot more photographers. And this is part of We Animals Media. It's about mentoring and bringing in new people uh, and exposing a lot more work to the world. Wahaha. We are just <laughs> going to continue to dominate this, like, this area and by dominate, I don't mean like dominate other people. I mean, bring lots of people into our work and create 
a really friggin' great archive that is going to help animals as much as we possibly can. Mm, it really is an incredible resource. We use a lot of plant-based news and um, I've seen a lot of other NGOs and charities use it and it really elevates the story and it elevates the, the kind of narrative around animals and, and what's going on with them in factory farms and other settings like um, labs, etc. With the actual process of going into these places, how did that all begin? Because obviously going into farms and sort of going into these kinds of environments, it's not that easy and it's... You know, some places you can walk in, other places you have to find other clever ways, um, obviously without revealing all your secrets and your tactics. I mean, what is that like going into these places? Oh, I'm happy to reveal my tactics. I talk about them all the time. And uh, and that's fine. I mean, it's, it's nothing that people wouldn't expect. It's nothing ingenious. We uh, well, it started with animal equality. I was I was doing all sorts of this work. But then when I wanted to start doing in-depth investigative work, I needed to learn with people who were doing it. And so I called up uh, Animal Equality in Spain and I went and spent weeks with them. Then I went on to work with a group called Jura Taliansen in Sweden. And then I was just ugh, like so immersed in the investigative world and I began doing it worldwide with various organizations. Yeah, sometimes we do ask to be invited onto a farm and we're granted access. But going back to our conversation in the beginning about why these stories are hidden, I think it's because... If we knew how badly these animals were treated, a lot of us would reconsider spending our money on what's being produced in there. And uh, this is a you know a trillion, trillion, trillion dollar industry, the meat eating industry, and so it is protected from us so that it continue it can continue. So yes, for the most part, I'm not invited into these places. They don't want people with cameras showing the conditions animals are living in, and so we do go in at night, um, often through open doors over a fence, through a fence, and uh, spending our night just documenting as many animals as we can, the conditions, the injuries, the cruelty, the sadness, the space, the lack of space, the filth. Uh, I wish that my images could convey the smells as well. Something that is always quite striking is when you're approaching a dirty farm, and a lot of them are dirty, pig farm, mink farm, oh my gosh. Sometimes your eyes water from the smell of ammonia. Is what's interesting about that is that you know if it's affecting us so much and our sense of smell, like we know that animals have much stronger sense of smell than we do. And so, what must that be like uh, on their noses and on their lungs? And we do know that a lot of pigs have respiratory problems. Well, actually, we don't know. Nobody knows that. Let me tell you, pigs, you know, in these really dirty places, have uh, lung issues because it's just horrible in there. The stinging pain in my chest never lets me down. I get to leave. They don't. Keeping people in the dark enables this industry to exist without scrutiny. Photography is my contribution. My way of shining a light in that darkness. My way of creating change. My promise. You too can make a promise to not cause harm. To look, to really see, and to never turn away. One uh, very interesting anecdote I heard from someone, I can't try to remember who it was, who was a, was a speaker about a sentience, and he was talking about how animals process and, and observe the passing of time. And 
often, you know, some animals observe the passing of time in very, very different ways to the way we do. And he was talking about how pigs, as an example, are highly intelligent beings, but they are a lot like dogs in the way that they observe time and the presence of time or the passing of time in, in, in a slightly different way that minutes to them are like hours and hours are like days and days are like months and months are like years. The way that they perceive time is is is, is such that when they are in these environments, that it's like an, a never ending now that actually, because they don't understand why they're there. It's hard to put into words. They don't have a, a framework to understand. Like if we were imprisoned in a in a cell, we have an, an idea of what came before and what came after. But a lot of them, their entire world is that factory farm. They don't know anything outside of it. So it's a sort of a never-ending kind of cycle of, of, of hell and suffering. And this is what is so abhorrent about factory farming above all other forms of farming is that these animals never get to experience joy or play or i mean if they do experience play it's usually some other animal in this in the pen chewing their tail off or biting at their ear you know in a, in a playful sense of boredom and this is what is so horrific about this environment because we would never treat dogs or cats in that way we would never dream of putting sentient animals like dogs and cats, smart, intelligent animals like dogs and cats in those kinds of environments and think it was okay. But yet pigs and chickens and ducks and geese and minks, highly intelligent creatures, are locked in spaces so small and so tiny they can't even turn around, not just for days, but for weeks and months. And the the, the fear and the terror and the insanity that must ensue. And I, I imagine you've experienced it on some of these mink farms where you see the animals going round and round and round and round or banging their heads and sort of getting caught in these repetitive behaviors. And this is, to me, it shows their intelligence because it shows a mind broken by the the prison that they exist within. When you are in these environments, though, and like, how do you, how do you, how, how do you keep? I'm just going to say, it, how do you keep your shit together? How do you, how do you stop yourself becoming overwhelmed with grief for our species and for them and 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 for the whole planet? How do you keep going and keep on capture, capturing and telling their stories without throwing your hands up in the air and saying, "I can't take this anymore. We don't, you know, this is just hopeless." How do you avoid that? Well- well, first of all, I want you and I to make a book together because you're so eloquent and I love how you speak um, you. about you know your knowledge of, of animals. And I think it'd be really cool if we did a book together. So I would, I would love that. <laughs> my images, your words. But as to how I cope, I want to have a happy life. And I do have a happy life and I protect that. And I've had to learn how to do that. Because in the beginning of all of this work, uh, as an empathetic person, I got so immersed in the suffering of others that I became to suffer tremendously. And I was diagnosed with PTSD and I had therapy and I, I needed to I don't know, learn. I needed to learn my way through it and want to push through it. And also learn, for me, learning that empathy sucks your energy and it's, it's, it's a wonderful quality to have, and we need to all have it. But to live in empathy with the suffering of others is a recipe for burnout. And so there's a big difference between empathy and compassion, whereas compassion can fuel you and enliven you and give you a more positive outlook of the world. Empathy 
uh, can have quite detrimental effects. So it's good to be aware of those two things, especially in the animal rights world. We talk a lot about empathy and being empathetic again, which we have to do. I just don't live there. I don't live in all the sorrows that I have mingled with in all of these places. I'm very aware of the emergency on planet Earth at every single second of every single day. But being aware of it does not need to translate for me into constant suffering because I just have this one precious, beautiful life and I want to be happy. I want to be full of energy and I want to feel optimistic for the things that I can do and the changes that I can make. And so I focus on change. I focus on good. I focus on the good people around me, the passionate people around me who are making the world a better place. Absolutely. And spe- speaking of wonderful people around you, um, you created something called the Unbound Project, ah, uh, which yeah. tells the story of incredible women on the forefronts of the animal rights movement and beyond. Tell us about how that started and and, and give us a couple of anecdotes of some of the, the amazing women that are sure. involved. Well, as I traveled globally to document these animal stories, both good and bad, I saw that it was mostly women involved. And yet it was men usually at the, as in the leadership role of an organization. And I wondered if I was just biased as a woman seeing it this way. So I did some research and I found that it's actually true that in North America and Europe, at least, the animal advocacy work happening is led 60 to 80% by women. And I thought, okay, well, this is something worth celebrating. I am a feminist and I want to support the work of women. And I also wanted to you know, amplify the voices of these women by giving them one more additional platform uh, where their work could be visible. Also of note is that I, I have had wonderful mentors in my life and heroes to look up to. And Jane Goodall was that for me when I saw her life and watched her life over the years. I was like, wow, you know, she is doing something unique and wonderful and her life is full of adventure. And that was a, a role model for me. You know, she could do it. I could do it too. And I wanted to give other people an opportunity to have even more women mentors in animal advocacy. So, you know, all sorts of women in all countries. So this was going to be yet another international project. And we feature uh, veterinarians like Dr. Gladys Kalema-Zikuzoka. She's a Ugandian, is that a word? She's from Uganda. Uh, She's a vet there. She's a gorilla vet and vet to other animals as well. She's a pioneer in uh, intersectional work, like bringing animal work together with community work. Uh, Her organization is called Community Through Public Health. And she knows that if you want to keep the wild gorillas healthy, you have to keep local communities healthy as well. Uh, really interesting work. And we feature the work of uh, uh, animal lawyers, neuroscientists, artists, sanctuary founders. It's pretty exciting. And it's so lovely to see how excited the women are about uh, being part of it as well. And so it really is a gift, I think. It's a gift to the women. It's a gift to the world. And it's really nice for me as well. It's a nice reprieve from the, uh, the sadder stories for sure. It's amazing, yeah, to hear their stories. And with kind of the imbalance really that we see in the world between men and women women often you know they're taking the weight of the world on their shoulders and the men at the front sort of taking all the glory how do we how do yeah how do we navigate that how do we without sort of like sidelining anyone how do we make it so that so that how do we create a world where men and women stand side by side rather than it off what often it often feels like men pushing to the front and pushing women back 
Um, Robbie, that's a really big question. <laughs> how do we do that? How do we do it? I mean, I want to know as a man, like, what can I do to help women feel more like they have a have a right and a, and a yeah have a right to 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 be heard, to be seen? It's it's, it's been a lifelong kind of question to me. What could I do more of as a man, really? Because mm. that's what Unbound is about. It's about lifting women, isn't it? Lifting their voices and their stories. It is. It is, is it our art? <laughs> Um, I, I think that we all need to make space for one another. We need to make space for women. And, you know, patriarchy is in part about uh, assuming that men are more skilled and more intelligent and more capable. This is, of course, not true. And fundamentally, we always have to keep that. We have to remember that that has to be at the forefront of all of our decisions and, and our listening and our making of space. So I, I think that that's where we start, which is an interesting and uh, conversation more relevant than ever these days with Black Lives Matter. It is. And making space for each other is, is such an important point is that, you know, learning to listen more, I think, is is a big part of what I feel the world needs is there's that old saying, we have two ears and one mouth because we should listen twice as much as we speak. Oh, I um, love that. You know, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's so true that people spend so much time talking uh, at others or sort of, you know, telling the world about what they want and who they are. Yeah. Uh, and very few people spend time listening or asking or inquiring, you know, who are you? What would you like? What would make you happy? You know, putting others first. And we live in a sort of selfish, self-centered world where people feel that, you know, they are the center of the universe. Uh, there was a study done with some children in the 50s, I believe, where they were given a list of questions and a, and, a, and a series of qualities they could be as human beings. And the number one thing that all the children chose in, in the 50s was to be kind. Mm. And the study was done again a recent, in recent times. Oh, no. Um, and the, and the, and the this, this similar size sample on the children chose the number one uh, quality was to be famous. No. Um, and you know, it really speaks to how the world has shifted. How you know, a post-war generation of children, you know, you know, not post, yeah, not post-war, but like the children of a post-war generation, or children's children, even, are still sort of reeling and battling with this identity of sort of trying to be seen and, and fighting for their space on on Mother Earth. And I think we have to really unlearn that. We have to go back to who we were before, which is. Strong, you know, stronger, more interconnected communities, and I think that's what we've lost as a, as a species. We've lost our interconnected nature. We're all more connected than ever with social media, but we have lost a lot of our humanity. I think in who we are, and yeah, one of my questions with, to you was, you know, when we talk, you and I talked about, is humanity at war with nature? Are we at war with Gaia? Do you feel like we are kind of losing our humanity every day if we? If we continue down this path, or do you? Because you, you know, you're a human being, obviously, like me, <laughs> and you, you, you do, you create, and you, you have your artistry, and that's what drives you forward. But intrinsically, as as a human being, like, do you, do you feel like we are? Do you think? Do you think that we're moving forward? Do you think there's been there's enough positive change in our world? We're moving forward and backwards. Yeah, and we just need more people moving forward and more education and more compassion. And, and that's, that's work, right? Like that's a lot of work. We have a lot of work to do. And it starts with raising kids in a way where they are taught that it feels fantastic to give instead of take. 
I mean, you, you said all of that very eloquently. It's not much that I can add, but you know, the veganism is on the rise, but so is meat eating. It depends on the economy in the country. So we have our work cut out for us and we know that things are an emergency right now. We really need to accelerate the good and decelerate the bad. It's the fight of our lives right now. It really, it really <laughs> yeah. is. Continuing on from uh, your many projects, one of your recent ones is Hidden, uh, a book which is a collaboration. And you've had a very successful crowdfunder backing it. Tell us a bit about Hidden, why it exists, and, and uh, what you hope to see from its future. I love this book so much. Uh, it's called Hidden, and the subtitle is Animals in the Anthropocene. And the Anthropocene is the proposed name for the current geologic epoch, uh, signifying basically human planetary domination. Uh, animals cannot escape us now, no matter where they are on Earth. There's a conflict photographer named James Noctaway, and he has spent decades of his life documenting genocides and human-caused famines and conflict of all kinds. And what he made was a book called Inferno. I think this was back in like 94 or 95. Inferno is an indictment of what we do to one another, and it's unflinching. And there's no happy endings at the end of the book. It's just like a historical document of this is what we do. And when I saw that book, I knew that eventually I wanted to make a book like this uh, for animals. And, and so he's very much the inspiration for, for this. It's been a very long time coming. You know, I, I, interestingly, I made We Animals before I made anything similar to Inferno. Uh, I find that sort of curious, but now I see that it just had to be the perfect project. And the perfect project was not going to be just my work. It was going to be the work of many animal photojournalists. And so right now, our photographer count is 35 photographers internationally shooting incredibly powerful images of what is and should never again be. And these images are just startling and beautiful and will stop you in your tracks. Yeah, I'm so pleased about this book because it continues to mentor and it continues to get animal photojournalism out into the world by creating a book. We're saying, Hey, this isn't going anywhere. This is something, this is material subject matter. That's worthy of a big ass book. It's a five pound book, 320 pages. It's huge in size. And we're saying, you know, we don't want these images just flying by on social media while people are like flipping through Instagram at two in the morning. No, like this is important. This is historic. And this is why we're putting it in a book. And while we are uh, only printing 1,500 copies in the first print run, the point is to have the book generate conversations. And it is really, really big time already. And we'll get that book out to influential people. And uh, we'll book tour. And there will be photo, like I'll do conferences giving photo presentations of all of this work and Ah, yeah. So we're really going to maximize this. And um, I'm so honored to be putting together a book that brings these brave photographers together. I know what it's like to put yourself out there and to put yourself at physical and psychological and emotional risk because you believe in telling a story so much. And so this will be uh, not the first of its kind, but it'll probably be the biggest <laughs> of its kind on this subject matter. Yeah, it's uh, really like incredible looking 
piece of art and I can't wait to get my paws on it. Uh, and also I'm very proud and touched and honored to be asked to be a hidden ambassador and support the work on, yes. on PBN and, and what I'm, and my, and my little, my little personal platform. But um, thank you. Yeah. yeah it's my thank you pleasure. for believing in the work so much. Oh, good good decision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Way to be on the right side of history. Yeah, absolutely. Turning obviously onto the future, your your work is obviously at, and has been for for quite some time painting the darker part of of humankind. With all the, the work that you have done, do you see a bright future? Um, you know, do, from on in your day to day, do you do you picture and envisage a world where humans and animals can live in harmony and and not in this sort of destructive relationship we have now? I don't really spend my time thinking about that, to be honest. Uh, because it's a lot to think about. I have thought about it plenty in the past, but I don't, yeah. I don't spend my time thinking about that more. I'm thinking about what can I do today to good advice. advance animal advocacy. Yeah. And I might start trying that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it works for me. It works for mm. me. I'm going to do the best that I can today to help animals. And sometimes, you know, it's a really good day and sometimes it's not as positive. I think that is a good, really good advice, you know, and something I'm definitely going to take on board is take each day at a time. Because I think sometimes, um, I know I do personally get trapped in this view of looking to the future so far ahead that I, I start to feel fear. I, I really do yeah. feel fear for, for, for our species. Just this last, this week, there was photos emerging of, you know, tens of thousands of people descending onto beaches here in England, you know, leaving, strewing huge tons of tons and tons and tons of plastic and waste and it's very hard not to feel anger and frustration and rage really because our species is capable of great things we are mm -hmm. capable of yes. wonderful acts of kindness and beauty and compassion and artistry and we are capable of living in harmony and symbiosis with the world we are we are mm -hmm. and even though it's very easy to become angry and misanthropic and hate every human but you know that isn't productive because there are generations coming up behind us who do deserve to be given an opportunity to live in harmony with Gaia and all the beautiful earthlings that live here with us. Mm -hmm. um, and just because our current generations are destructive and have a, you know, a sense of annihilation sort of embedded within them, that doesn't mean humans that come along in the future aren't going to, are, are not going to be like that. If, if there is always that possibility because that's, the beauty and wonderful nature, beautiful and wonderful nature of human beings is that we are capable of great change. I know people who've gone from being butchers, full-time butchers, to being vegan activists. These are people who cut and chop up animals into pieces on a daily basis, and their whole world revolves around killing animals. And now they're doing the absolute antithesis of that, and they're completely changed. And you know, these are people who cry at the sight of you know little baby lambs um, and cute bunnies. You know, they're like people are capable of. 180 degree change. That is what gives me hope is that while there's still people out there who are making these shifts and these changes, there's always hope for our species. That's for sure. I mean, we couldn't end on a better note than that. <laughs> I know you're, you're the host, not me, and I'm not calling the shots yeah, here. No, no, it's all good. It's a nice great. round. It's a, it's a nice round. I always like to keep it to an hour because obviously people are very busy these days and everyone listening you're like you know there's so much to talk about I think it's uh, it's always good to have a, a nice round 60 minutes but before I let you go I always like to ask my guests this one question if you were stuck on a desert island and there was just you and a pig yeah um, 
you're obviously not going to eat the pig because you're a vegan. Um, <laughs> if I could give you one vegan dish, one music album, and one book, what would you take with you? <laughs> oh, well, unfortunately, because I'm so emo, it would probably be In Rainbows by Radiohead. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it would be like a, my playlist of oldies. I, I listen to a lot of oldies. So how about an endless playlist of oldies? Perfect. <laughs> Uh, the dish would be uh, anything involving pesto, probably a pesto linguine with like roasted cherry tomatoes, pine nuts, and some kind of tempeh protein. Amazing. The book would be uh, probably like short stories by Tolstoy. Wonderful. That sounds like a great collection on that island well, where he, you'll be uh, with yeah. your pig. <laughs> I will read to the pig. That's something I do. I, I read aloud to people, especially poetry. It's something that I like to do at the end of the day using Signal or WhatsApp. Um, I, mm -hmm. I, I recite poetry to people. Uh, it's very Amazing. calming. So I would probably read Tolstoy to the pig. That sounds wonderful. Ms. Joanne MacArthur, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It's been a joy and a pleasure to talk to you as always. I always love speaking with you, Robbie, and looking forward to the next time. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more health, fashion, veganism, animals, ethics, and everything in between. <laughs>